Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. Janice had very, very pale white skin with trillions of little cinnamon-colored freckles. They said there's a patient down there who's speaking in tongues. No one can communicate with him. And sometimes people will even ask me, are you sure you stutter? Like, I don't know that I stutter. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Hinkin. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week on the podcast, we continue our Best of the Stoop series as we head into our 15th year and prepare to return to live shows. Thank you, Yes, we're visiting some of our favorite stories. And this week, we bring you three true personal tales about unforgettable first times. Before we get started, we want to thank Park School and Independent Co-Ed Progressive Pre-K through Grade 12 School located minutes from Baltimore. This first storyteller is um, one of my all-time favorite folks to have ever graced the stoop stage. His name is Ab Logan. He passed away a few years ago, um, and he had been a teacher in um, Baltimore area for an English teacher, a beloved English teacher for years and years and years. And we just got very lucky that he found out about us and that we found out about him and that he shared this story on our stage on, I think it was our, our first year of doing the stoop. So take a listen. In seventh grade, I was invited to Al Azero's birthday party. He was 13. It was the first event to which I was invited, to which you had to take a date. I had to ask some girl to go with me. I cheated. I arranged for Bobby Gilmartin to go with my sister Mary, and I would go with his sister, Mary. (laughs) I don't think the arrangement even required that I speak to Mary Gilmartin before my mother drove us over to pick them up. The party was held in the basement at Alizero's house, big house on Overland Road. There was music, Johnny and Joe, little Richard. Every now and then, Mr. or Mrs. Azero would come to the top of the stairs with a platter of food, and somebody would go up and get that. And there was probably dancing, but I don't remember that because we were into a game I'd never heard before called Post Office. (laughs) This game required that everyone be given a number, and that night the boys all had even numbers and the girls had odd numbers. I don't remember my number, but Margie Ferranti was number one. (laughs) Evelyn Scott was number three. And Lois Lizer was number 15. They got a lot of mail. <laughs> fairly, fairly early in the game, my number was called, and uh, it was explained that I would go into the laundry room and close the door, and the girl who had called my number would be in there, and we would kiss. So I went into the laundry room, and there was Janice McGartland. I'd known Janice McGartland all my life. She was one of the McGartland kids. Jeannie, Jerry, Janice, Julie and Pat, the twins. 
Emmy Lou, Tony, Michael, Nancy, and Grace. Like all the McGartland kids, Janice had very, very pale white skin with trillions of little cinnamon-colored freckles. She was a, a trim little girl in a plaid dress that night. And I was nervous. I said, where would you like it? <laughs> and she pointed to a place up on her cheekbone and said, this would be nice. So I leaned forward and I placed my kiss in a little archipelago of cinnamon freckles. And our turn was over. A little later, there was some horseplay over by the laundry room, and somebody threw open the laundry room door, drawing a turn, and I looked in, and there was Janice McGartland again, this time with Bobby Kisheva. And Bobby had his left arm around her waist and his right arm sort of circling her shoulders. She was inclined back about 20 degrees. And Bobby was putting his kiss right on her mouth. Now, every kid at this party was a student at Our Lady of the Most Blessed Sacrament School. <laughs> we, we were all being taught by the Ursuline sisters of East Liberty. So it's, it's not my particular, my personal retardation was not the nun's fault or the church's fault. And it was not that I knew nothing at all about kissing. Uh, I knew three things. Uh, kissing was something your mother or your Aunt Charlotte could do to you. Uh, it was a duty thing. Kissing happened in the movies, uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson, but their kissing had about as much to do with my life as anything else in the movies had to do with my life. But then... Kissing had an abstract reality for me. It was an idea. I had a sense that a kiss was the, the gesture that you used to show someone you were in love with them. I hadn't thought through why that particular gesture had been chosen for that communication. <laughs> but I was quite sure that somewhere out in the foggy future, I would kiss someone to deliver that message. And I had my eyes on Antonia Gentlecore, who lived about a block from me on my paper route. But Antonia Gentlecore was not at this party because she was in fifth grade. And there's no way a seventh grade boy and a fifth grade girl can be seen together. I had thought about it, you know, in my quiet moments delivering papers, and I had done the math. Seventh grade and fifth grade just does not compute. I looked ahead, eighth, sixth, that was no better. Ninth, seventh, that's worse. Ten, eight, no, but just maybe if you could work up the nerve to ask her out, a junior in high school, an 11th grader, maybe could get away with asking out a ninth grader, I thought. And I was pretty sure that as a senior, I could invite Antonia Gentlecore to the prom. 
and then I would kiss her to let her know how highly I thought of her. <laughs> My education in all of this might not have proceeded further very fast, except that my number was called again. And I went into the laundry room, and there was Rosemary Blau, a classmate of mine. Rosemary was a girl known mostly for goodness. She was good. Uh, A a well-behaved, polite, soft-spoken, generous girl. The nuns were crazy about her. And she had long brown curly hair and big sort of soulful brown eyes. And Rosemary Blau had braces, serious braces, (laughs) with a a double band on top and a band on the bottom and and individual teeth wrapped in metal jackets and hooks and rubber bands. And it was my job to kiss her. And it flashed through my mind that it might hurt to be kissed (laughs) with all that metal in your mouth. Uh, But Rosemary put her right hand up on my cheek and she said, you hold still, I'll move. (laughs) And then she put her other hand on my other cheek and she moved forward very slowly. She feathered down. The landing took a week. And then she moved side to side. She was in no hurry at all, uh, very gently, while the universe and all its meanings reorganized themselves. (laughs) At 12, I had a system of values. I, I, I had priorities. But I know that that night, well, mashed potatoes and gravy were never going to have the same place in my life. (laughs) My mom picked us up, and I could not stop talking all the way home about what a great party this had been. This was just (laughs) a fantastic experience. I don't know what happened to Mary Gilmartin. Her, Her dad worked for Gulf Oil They moved to Texas. I don't know where she is, but I know that she is not tonight standing on a stage somewhere telling strangers what a good time she had (laughs) at Alizero's 13th birthday party. Those details, those details. I feel like that's like a, this is a master class in details. My God, the freckles and oh, just oh, so so lovely. Pacing, everything about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it was it it was like uh, mesmerizing. And totally. Ugh. Yeah. Um, actually, details for this next story too. So the next story we're going to share today on first times is from Dr. Ethel Weld, and who's a doctor practicing in Baltimore, but at the time. She was sharing the story. She was a resident. And um, this is just as unforgettable as Ab's story in a completely different way. Take a listen. So it was a typically crazy day in the medical intensive care unit. Um, And I was a medical intern, brand new, way over my head. 
And I was still getting used to carrying around the pager, um, and I was honing my fight-or-flight response to it, um, mostly flight. Um, I always wanted to run whenever it went off because it was in the habit of summoning me to disastrous situations in the middle of the night that felt way beyond my capability to handle. Um, and I, I still didn't respond when people called me doctor because I, I absolutely assumed and fervently hoped that they were referring to someone else um, who would actually know what to do in the situation at hand. Um, and I, I remember I had been on call for 17 hours, and um, I was just about to sit down. I hadn't sat down once, and I was lowering myself painfully into a chair, thinking about the 13 hours that loomed ahead. And my pager went off. And uh, so I got back up, and I looked, and it was the emergency room um, summoning me uh, down uh, to look at a patient. Um, And I just was so weary, and my mouth was dry, and it felt like it had been used as a latrine by some small animal of the night, and (laughs) subsequently as its mausoleum, as described in... um, in Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim. Actually, all the descriptions of being extremely hungover that I've ever read um, are pretty evocative of the basic um, MO of being a medical intern. You're basically hungover for an entire year. And as a medical professional, my experience of this affliction is limited to reading other people's firsthand accounts, of course. Um, but, uh, but as I've heard. Um, so I, I, I looked at the page and it's the emergency room, and I went... I went down. Uh, they said, there's a patient down there who's speaking in tongues. No one can communicate with him. He's in the upper unsalvageable reaches of hepatic encephalopathy. In other words, his liver is so dead that it filters none of the toxins that his body produces. And there's nothing to stop him from getting just crazy off the fumes of all his intrinsic poisons. Uh, not to mention hemorrhaging out of every pore of his body. Um, so I went, uh, I went down, and, and I approached his hospital bed, <laughs> and um, to the rescue, you know, I was a brand new intern with no ideas about what to do, um, and I saw him from the door. He was this um, slight man. His, the whites of his eyes were the color of a yellow highlighter pen, and his belly was the size of a late-term pregnancy, and he had all the stigmata of chronic liver disease. And um, I went up to him. I started asking him questions. He did seem distraught. He was writhing around. Um, but, I, you know, I actually, he sort of was responding to me. And, and I, it took me about 15 seconds to realize I actually understood what he was saying. Maybe he'd been billed to me as speaking in tongues. And I realized he was, I understood him because he was speaking French. Um, and um, not only French, but the, the mellow... Um, accented French of Francophone Africa, which I knew well because I'd I'd lived in Gabon the previous year doing a fellowship in pediatrics. And so I I started speaking to him in French in my pretty embarrassing and heavily African-accented French, but I was able to communicate with him. And and he told me he had moved, he was from Cameroon, he had moved to Baltimore to stay with family, and he had known he was getting sick over months. And he just couldn't afford a doctor. So he had, he had been medicating himself with um, shorties of vodka and, uh, and 40s of St. Ides because it, it's what he had to make do with because the sugar cane at wine of home was not available. And this, was, this actually was um, 
in the armamentarium of, of medicines at home. Um, and he sort of, I remember he gestured with his hands, like these slow, taffy-pulling motions to show, like, the inexorable increase of his belly over the past months and just how, how he knew he was getting sick and he couldn't come in. So I, I brought him up to the, to the ICU, and I, my hand was on his stretcher in the elevator, and I w- it was shaking, I remember. And I remember my galloping heart rate absolutely matched his heart rate on the monitor. And I brought him up, and we got him in a room, and we started pouring blood products into him, platelets and clotting factors and blood products. But it was like pouring them into a sieve because he was bleeding so much. And... I had to put an IV, a large central line, into his, into his groin, into his femoral vein. And under normal circumstances, the femoral vein is about the size of a man's thumb, and it's you know, half a centimeter under the skin, and it's pretty, pretty easy to hit. But in someone with a dropping blood pressure, um, and with, even with the steadiest of hands, uh, it's, it's really like stabbing a minnow underwater with a toothpick, and it's, it's very hard to do. So... I was sort of trying, and, you know, he was thrashing around so much that it required two people to hold down every limb. And I um, finally stopped noticing the absolute futility of continuing to attempt this procedure. And I said, sir, what, what can I help you with? Why are you thrashing around? And he said something that I remember receiving as odd, but I, I, it didn't really register at the time. He said, um, me maso. I want to sing. Why won't you let me sing? And I looked at the nurses holding his limbs down and the orderlies, you know, making sure he didn't, you know, pull out every IV that had been put in him. And I said, um, does anyone mind if he sings? And, and no one did. And so I was like, Mais monsieur, on vous laisse. Vous pouvez chanter, pas de problème. Go ahead. Go ahead, sing. And, um, and he sang. And it was haunting and beautiful. And it was this uh, African-inflected religious song that had elements of a schoolyard chant. It was that catchy. And I'm, I'm musically... Uh, deficient, so I can't remember a note or a word, but I would give almost anything to be able to have the recording. Um, And I realized at the time that it was tantamount to prayer. He was praying, for sure. And um, after he sang, his whole body relaxed, and the lines between his eyebrows that seemed completely etched just melted away. And he just sank into a sleep, and I, to the extent that I could put in this femoral line into his vein with suddenly, like, unexpectedly steady hands. And, um, and then he sank into a rictus, and then as his last breaths sort of faded away, uh, he died 20 minutes after his swan song. And um, this represented many firsts to me. And the first first was that it was the first patient of mine that I, I witnessed dying. And uh, incidentally, it's actually also this, the first time I ever liked a hymn because I, I had only ever heard the sort of leaden, mumbly hymns of, of um, other people's churches. Um, but most meaningfully for me, it represented the first time that I realized something that every hard-bitten ICU nurse knows, um, which is that 
people, even very sick people, can choose when they die. And what I had actually witnessed is someone, this man who had been dying slowly for months and then extremely rapidly in front of my eyes for hours, looking at death in the face and meeting the reaper and, if not beating him, racing him. Oh, it's such a heartbreaking story. It is. And it's, there's, you know, just those details of like the whites of the poor man's eyes being as yellow as a yellow highlighter and, you know, just all of her sharing about what her state of mind was and how, how scary this was and how hard and, and what she learned from this man. Oh, it was just really, really lovely. Well, before we get started on our next storyteller, uh, we want to thank a new supporter of the podcast, which is Mend Acupuncture, uh, which was named the best place to get poked. It offers enjoyable and low-stress acupuncture sessions starting at $35 a pop in the Baltimore area. So our final story for today is by Dr. Lena Wen. And this story... Um, was shared at a show that we did on our 10th anniversary, um, which was um, a show about adolescence, awkward adolescence. Um, and now we are coming up on our 15th anniversary. So I guess we're teenagers, is that right? We are. Yeah, perfect. We are getting um, our, our um, what is it, the before you drive? Um, oh, learner's permit. Learner's permit. Yes. <laughs> Um, all, of course, some of us even were driving before learner's permit when they took out their parents' cars without asking and with their license. Uh, you, I know people would think that's you, but that was me. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel like it's more a you thing to do, but I occasionally did some Absolutely things that were. shocking that you did that. Yes, I know. Um, um, it's a good thing. Or if you're listening. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yes, I'm sure they would still try to ground me at this point. Um, okay, so Dr. Lena Wynn. So for several years, she was the health commissioner here in Baltimore. Um, and then she moved to Planned Parenthood. And then after leaving there, she has become a medical analyst for CNN. She's a professor. And at the end of this month, uh, she has a book coming out called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And so this story um, that she shares is a personal story about her own um, struggles and how they sort of informed her philosophy on public health. So take a listen. Good evening, everyone. On Sunday night, three days ago, I talked to Laura Wexler. That was the first time that I met Laura. And I asked her a question. I asked her, can I have a podium here tonight? You see, I had, I have notes. And I wrote out my speech. There was this long silence. <laughs> Clearly, I didn't understand what Stoop Stories was about. The problem is that I did. You see, I'm used to writing out 
everything. That's because I'm a person who stutters. You may not hear it in my voice. And sometimes people will even ask me, are you sure you stutter? Like, I don't know that I stutter. (laughs) But part of how I deal with stuttering is to script everything out. So I have some notes. I'll try not to use them. This is hard for me, but I hope you'll bear with me. Thank you. Growing up, stuttering is what I thought about all the time. My stutter was often so bad that I couldn't get out any words at all. One of my earliest memories is of going to the closet different from what the last speaker did in the closet. (laughs) But I hid in the closet during recess because I didn't want to talk to my classmates. There was a class where, and I remember this so well, where I had to talk about the Roman Empire, but I felt myself stuttering on the word Roman. And so I stabbed myself in the leg with a pencil just so that I could get sent to the nurse's office. And that piece of pencil lead is still on my thigh today. Now, I couldn't get rid of my stuttering, so I tried to hide it. Now, I knew, just like many people who stutter, we know which words will trip us up. And so I figured out ways to avoid it. So I never asked for a pencil, only something to write with. So I got lots of other stuff to write with sometimes. I never ate sandwiches because I couldn't say the word to order it. And... I always did everything I could not to introduce myself because my name, Lena, wasn't something that I could easily substitute. Over time, I became so good at hiding that people rarely heard me stutter, but they also rarely heard me speak. And I lived in fear that someday I'd be found out. I didn't have friends, not real friends, not in elementary school, and not in junior high school. I went to college when I was 13, and that's another stoop story for adolescent awkward story sometime. (laughs) And I wasn't as cool as that first kid who went up to talk about his Chuck E. Cheese days, so I don't know. (laughs) Now, how could I have any friends, though, when I was hiding the biggest part of myself, my biggest shame? And I was so terrified of anyone finding out this deep, dark secret that I could never let anyone be close to me at all. Instead, I became a master of overcompensation. You know, I figured that all I had to do was study all the time. So I camped down on libraries. I never went out. Basically, I became the ideal Asian student. (laughs) The student, the daughter, that tiger mom would have loved But in medical school, I tried even harder to prove myself by hiding my stuttering. But things got worse and worse. Now, I can't really see you out there, but have any of you ever felt like an imposter? Okay, let's admit that we have felt like it. But I felt, you know, what if people find out that I stutter? Would they say I'm not fit to be in medical school? 
Would they kick me out? It was totally irrational, but it's what I believed. My parents didn't even know that I stuttered, and I thought that I needed to hide it for everyone's sake. I was actually protecting them by doing it. The only problem was that the harder I tried to hide my stuttering, the worse my speech became. Initially, it was words that started with five letters. Then it became ten. Then it became fifteen. Then I couldn't say more than half the alphabet. Can you imagine going through life not speaking half the alphabet? It took a lot of mental space to do that. But then I didn't even want to go to class anymore. I couldn't go to work. It got to the point that I physically felt sick thinking about myself, and I wanted to die. That was the first time that I sought the help. Of a speech therapist, and I was lucky that I found someone called Vivian, who was a really smart lady. She knew that if she said to me, "Okay, what you need to do is accept yourself right here, right now," that I would just run out the door. And instead, she said, "You know, I'm going to have some people over to my house this weekend. Why don't you come too?" I remember that day really well because that was the day that my entire life changed. And it was a cold day like today, and I remember driving close to Vivian's house, circling the block, and circling the block again, trying to see who are these secret people at her house. And it was really cold. And finally, I parked the car and was about to walk outside. But then I thought, you know, I just can't go. And I had restarted my car when someone knocked on the window. Are 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 you going to Vivian's? He said. I had heard people stutter before, but I never heard someone stutter so easily and so comfortably. And I thought, well, maybe I should find out what that's all about. So I went in, and there in Vivian's house, I met dozens of other people—a NASA astronaut, a high school teacher, a stand-up comedian, a trial lawyer—all of whom had one thing in common: they, we, all stuttered. There were people who openly stuttered with re- 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 repetitions and blocks. There were other people who didn't sound like they stuttered, but who had just gotten really good at hiding and replacing their words, which was something that I understood really well. There were college students and there were retirees. The one thing we had in common was that we all lived through years of fear and shame, and we saw that in each other. I was 22. That was the first time that I ever felt like I belonged, where I could be who I wanted to be, say what I wanted to say, and be accepted or even praised for doing that. Then came the really hard part. I had to tell my family that I stuttered. Never mind how ridiculous it sounds, right? How is it that I felt the most terrified of telling the people who care the most about me? But it's these people whose judgment matter the most too. I couldn't quite believe it when my mother told me that she knew all these years, she's known it all my life, but she was just afraid of telling me for fear of hurting my feelings. I still find it hard to talk about stuttering. This is the only the second time in public that I've talked about it.
I appreciate your applause, but you know, in my head, I'm still thinking, what is it that they're really thinking? You know, what will they say about this afterwards? What is going to happen on social media? <laughs> and part of me still wishes that maybe I should have kept myself in the closet and closed the door and thrown away the key. But if I did that, I wouldn't have met some amazing people, really the first real friends I've ever had. I wouldn't have married my husband, who also stuttered growing up. And I wouldn't have such a clear idea of who I am, not only what you see, an Asian American, a woman, a doctor, a public health leader, but also a person who stutters. It's taken me years to see that my greatest source of shame is also the biggest part of my identity. And my job now, as you heard Laura say, I meet many people who feel that society has cast them aside. Individuals with drug addiction, who are HIV positive, who are experiencing homelessness, who have severe mental illness. Public health's primary duty and my calling in life is to reassure these people, reassure everyone that we have to leave shame at the door, that there is a place for us to belong, and that it is the duty of us in society to regard everyone with the dignity and humanity that each person deserves. Thank you very much. so many things about this story that are I feel like all these stories I'm going to say it again like the details are just are unforgettable but that when she talks about you know being in the car outside that party about to leave because she's just too nervous to go in and there's a knock at her window and the you know she rolls it down and the guy says you know are you going to the party and he stutters um that I could just see, I can just see it, you know, yeah. like a movie. Um, and just the idea that at that age of 21, you know, 24, whatever she is, it's like the first time that she ever hears people openly stutter and realizes she's not alone. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's Love such it. a pervasive condition that people, you know, um, it's, there's a continuum of how it impacts you. I mean, just to have our current president be so open about it is, yeah. is just really, really helpful for um, people who are struggling just to be open about your struggles. Yeah. I think we're learning like that's true for almost everything. everything. Yeah. Or maybe everything. Yeah. Yeah. So we are going to be open about our love for the wine source and Golden <laughs> West, which are both businesses located in Hamden, Wine Source has beer, wine, snacks. Golden West has vegan forward food and a late night carryout window and lots of cool um, events. So please visit them, support them, and tell them we sent you. And also visit soupstorytelling.com so you can learn about our upcoming shows, which as I think we mentioned are going to be live and in person. <laughs> Hallelujah. You can also listen to stories from our archives. You can find our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast content. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Soup Storytelling Series. Finally, thank you to Thanks Maureen Harvey. To Maureen As Harvey. always. 
for producing and to y'all for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the future.